Section 5 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 10, Part 2. On the 16th of May, her son, the Chevalier de St. George, left her to serve his third campaign in the Low Countries, under Marshal Villers, with whom he formed an intimate friendship. The Duke of Berwick was one of the commanders in the French army, and was the medium of a close political correspondence between his uncle Marlborough and Mary Beatrice. The victorious general of the British army was in disgrace with his sovereign, Queen Anne. His son-in-law, Sunderland, had lost his place in her cabinet. His colleague, Godolphin, had been compelled to resign, and nothing but the influence of the Allies kept himself in command of the forces. While the hostile armies were encamped on the banks of the Scarp, there was a great deal of political coquetry going on between some of the English officers of Marlborough's staff and the personal retinue of the Chevalier St. George, who, at the request of the former, showed himself on horseback on the opposite side of the narrow stream to a party who had expressed an ardent desire to see him. Medals bearing the impression of his bust and superscription were eagerly accepted by many of those who, though they had taken the oath of abjuration, could not refrain from regarding the rejected representative of their ancient sovereigns with feelings inconsistent with their duty to the constitutional sovereign. Marlborough's master of the horse, Mr. Pitt, was the recipient of several of these medals, which Charles Booth, one of the chevalier's grooms of the bedchamber had the boldness to send by the trumpet. Medals were also addressed to several of the general officers, each being enclosed in a paper on which was written, The medal is good, for it bore six hours fire. You know it was hot, for yourselves blew the coals. This observation was in allusion to the gallant conduct of the exiled prince at Malplaquet, which was rendered more intelligible by the following postscript. You know it was well tried on the 11th of September, 1709. Marlborough winked at all these petty treasons, apparently not displeased at seeing the son of his old master making the most of his proximity to the British army. Mary Beatrice, in reply to a communication which Marlborough made to her through his nephew, Berwick, confiding to her his intention of resigning his places under Queen Anne, wrote a very remarkable letter to him, which Marshal Villers himself enclosed in one of his own military notes to the British commander, written in all probability, merely to furnish an excuse for sending a trumpet to the hostile camp for the purpose of delivering it to his double-dealing grace, to whom it was addressed under the name of Gurney, one of the numerous aliases by which he is designated in the Jacobite correspondence. Her Majesty speaks of her son also by the sobriquet of Mr. Matthews. She informs Marlborough that what he wrote to his nephew on the 13th of the last month, June 1710, was of such great importance to her son, as well as to himself, that she thinks herself obliged to answer it with her own hand, and then continues in these words. I shall tell you, in the first place, that as I was glad to find you still continue in your good resolutions towards Mr. Matthews, her son, I was surprised, on the other hand, to see you had a design of quitting everything as soon as the peace was concluded, for I find that to be the only means of rendering you useless to your friends, and your retreat may prove dangerous to yourself. 
you are too large a mark, and too much exposed for malice to miss, and your enemies will never believe themselves in safety till they have ruined you. There is something very amusing in the pointed manner in which the widow of James the Second endeavors to persuade her correspondent that not only his revenge, but his self-interest, ought to bind him to the cause of her son. She lets him see plainly that she understands his game is a difficult one. No barrister could have argued the case with greater ingenuity than she does in her quiet, ladylike logic. She says, but as you are lost, if you quit your employments, I see likewise, on the other hand, that it will be difficult for you to keep yourself in office, as things are now situated, so that your interest itself now declares for your honor. You cannot be in safety without discharging your duty, and the time is precious to you as well as to us. In the next paragraph, the royal writer replies, with equal dignity and diplomacy, to some clause in Marlborough's letter, relating to Mrs. Masham, the successful rival who had supplanted his duchess in his sovereign's regard. The advice you give us in sending us to the new favorite is very obliging, but what can we hope from a stranger who has no obligation to us? Whereas we have all the reasons in the world to depend upon you, since we have now but the same interest to manage, and you have the power to put Mr. Matthews, her son, in a condition to protect you. Lay aside, then, I beseech you, your resolution of retiring. Take courage, and without losing more time, send us a person in whom you can have an entire confidence. Or if you have not such a man with you, allow us to send you one whom we may trust, in order to concert matters for our common interest, which can never be properly done by letters. We shall know by your speedy and positive answer to this letter what judgment we can form of our affairs. Matters hung on a perilous balance for the Protestant succession when a correspondence, of which this letter is a sample, was going on between the mother of the Chevalier de St. George and the commander of the British army, of which the said Chevalier himself was within a morning's ride. Perhaps if the Duchess of Marlborough, with her vindictive passions and governing energies, had been in the camp of the Allies, the game that was played by Marlborough in 1688 at Salisbury, might have been counteracted by a more astounding change of colors on the banks of the Scarp in 1710. Ninety thousand a year was, however, too much to be hazarded by a man whose great object in life was to acquire wealth, and having acquired, to keep it. He took the wiser part, that of trimming, in readiness to sail with any wind that might spring up, but waiting to see in which direction the tide of fortune would flow. It is to be observed withal that Mary Beatrice neither makes professions in her letter, nor holds out any prospect of reward. I must not finish my letter, she says in conclusion, without thanking you for promising to assist me in my suit at the Treaty of Peace. Meaning the payment of her jointure and arrears, for which Marlborough had always been an advocate under the rose, for he took good care not to commit himself by a public avowal of his sentiments on that head. My cause, continues the royal widow, meekly, is so just that I have all reason to hope I shall gain it. At least I flatter myself that Mr. Matthew's sister, that is her stepdaughter, Queen Anne, is of too good a disposition to oppose it. 
The pretense made by Anne, or her ministers, for withholding the provision guaranteed by Parliament for her father's widow, that the fund voted to King William for that purpose had been applied, since his death, to other uses, could scarcely be regarded as a legal excuse, especially since the death of the other Queen Dowager, Catherine of Braganza, had placed her appanage and income at the disposal of the crown, and this Mary Beatrice, in her bitter penury, would gladly have accepted in lieu of her own. Marlborough's correspondence is thus alluded to by the Chevalier de St. George, in one of his droll letters to the Earl of Middleton, dated Arras, July 25th, 1710. I shall not write to the Queen today, having nothing to say to her more than what is done. Present my duty to her. I have at last quite done with physic, and I hope with my ague, and that with only ten doses of quinquina, but I shall still keep possession of my gatehouse till the army removes, which must be soon. Our Hector, that is Villers, doth talk of fighting in his chariot, but I don't believe him, especially now that the conferences of peace are certainly renewed. You will have seen before this, Gurney's, that is Marlborough's, letter to Daniel, that is Berwick, and another to Hector, in which Foliette's, that is Queen Mary Beatrice's children, himself and the princess his sister, are mentioned, I find Hector very willing to do anything in his power for them. The rest of the letter is very lively and amusing, but chiefly relating to a masked ball at which he had been present. In his next, he says, I was surprised to find by my sister's letter of the 30th that the queen had been ill at Marley, but am mightily glad it is so well over. Present her my duty. Mary Beatrice and her daughter wrote very frequently to the Chevalier de St. George during his absence with the army. Their letters, if preserved, would be of no common interest, endearing and confidential as the style of both these royal ladies was, considering, too, the romantic position occupied by the prince. As for him, he was just two and twenty, and writes with all the gaiety of his uncle, Charles II, at the same age. I gave the Mariscal, he says. This day the Queen's packet, containing her letter to Marlborough, which I reckon gone by this time. Though Follette has said nothing of her children, yet Hector has again writ about them. I could not put off his writing about them till I heard from you, because he had now no other pretense, as I thought he had. Pray send me back Gurney's, that is Marlborough's, letter to him, that is Villers, for he wants the name of the colonel that is in it. Mary Beatrice, meantime, to spare herself the painful attempt at keeping up the shadowy imitation of a royal court, had withdrawn with her daughter, the Princess Louisa, to her apartments in the convent of Chalot, where they lived in the deepest retirement. Her Majesty occasionally paid flying visits to Saint-Germain for the purpose of holding councils and transacting business, but her ministers generally came to wait on her at the convent. The manner in which the royal widow passed her time when on a visit to the convent of Chalot is thus detailed by one of the ecclesiastics attached to that foundation. At eight o'clock she rises, having previously read the epistle and gospel for the day after the morrow, with great attention, and after that some of the circular letters of the convent containing the records of departed sisters of the order of distinguished piety. She possesses, continues our author a perfect knowledge of the blessed scriptures, 
as well as the writings of our holy founder, so that she is able to cite the finest passages on occasion, which she always does so much to the purpose, that one knows not which to admire most, the eloquence of her words, or the aptness of her wit. She knows Latin, French, Italian, and English, and will talk consecutively in each of these languages without mixing them, or making the slightest mistake. But that which is the most worthy of observation in this princess is, the admirable charity and moderation with which she speaks of every one. Of her enemies, she would rather not speak, following the precept of our holy founder, that when nothing good can be said, it is best to say nothing. She has never used one word of complaint or invective of any of them. Neither has she betrayed impatience of their prosperity or joy at their sufferings. She said little of them and recommended those about her to imitate her example, yet she assured us that she had no difficulty in forgiving them, but rather pleasure. If she heard either good or evil news, she recognized the hand of God in both alike, often repeating the words of the holy psalmist. I was silent and opened not my mouth, for it is thou, Lord, that hast done it. From the same authority we learn that on leaving her chamber, the queen always entered her oratory, where she spent an hour in her private devotions. She afterwards attended the public services of the church, then returned to dress for the day. She either dined in her own chamber or in the refectory with the community, where she seated herself in the midst of the sisters near the abbess. Her ladies occupied a table by themselves. She was always served by two of the nuns. At ten o'clock, one of the sisters read to her for half an hour, from the imitation of Jesus Christ, by Thomas Akempis, or some good book on the love of God. She observed all the regulations of the convent, when with the community, and read, listened, meditated, or worked with them, as if she had belonged to the order. If there were any sick persons in the infirmary, she always visited them in the course of the day. During her retreats at Chalot, she received visits from the Dauphin, Dauphiness, and almost all of the princesses of the blood. She once assisted at the profession of a novice, whom she led by the hand to the altar, to receive the veil, and bestowed upon her her own name, Marie Beatrice. The reverence, modesty, and profound silence which she observed at church was very edifying. If they brought to her letters from her son, she never opened them in that holy place or withdrew till the service was concluded, when she retired into the sacristy and read them there, as she had formerly done with regard to those from the king, her late royal husband. Motives of economy had doubtless as much to do with these retreats of the exiled queen to the convent of Chalot as devotion. She could live with the princess, her daughter, and their ladies at a very trifling expense, in a place where simplicity of dress and abstentiousness of diet, instead of incurring sarcastic observations, were regarded as virtues. The self-denying habits practiced by Mary Beatrice, while an inmate of this convent, neither resulted from superstition nor parsimony, but from a conscientious reluctance to expend more than was absolutely necessary upon herself in a time of general suffering and scarcity. One day, when she was indisposed, and dining in her own apartment at Chalot, the two nuns who waited upon her observed that she was vexed at something, and spoke angrily to Lady Strickland, the keeper of her privy purse, whose office it was to superintend the purveyances for the queen's private table. 
As her majesty spoke in English, the nuns did not understand what it was that had displeased her, but in the evening she said, that she was sorry she had spoken so sharply to Lady Strickland, who had served her faithfully for nearly thirty years. They then took the liberty of inquiring what that lady had done to annoy her majesty. She thought, said the queen, that as I was not well, I should like some young partridges for my dinner, but they are very dear at this time, and I confess I was angry that such costly dainties should be procured for me, when so many faithful followers are in want of bread at Saint-Germain. It is true, continued her majesty, that all the emigrants are not persons who have lost their fortunes for our sakes. Too many who apply to me for relief are ruined spendthrifts, gamblers, and people of dissipated lives, who have never cared for the king or me, but came over to be maintained in idleness out of our pittance, to the loss and discredit of more honorable men. Those sort of people, she said, were more importunate for relief than any other, and had caused her great annoyance by their irregularities, for she was somehow considered responsible for the misdemeanors of every member of the English emigration. The keepers of the royal forest and preserves of Saint-Germain-en-Laye once made a formal complaint to our unfortunate queen, that her purveyors had purchased poached game belonging to his most Christian majesty for her table. Mary Beatrice was indignant at the charge, and protested that it was incredible. They assured her in reply, that they could bring ample proofs of the allegation, having traced the game into the chateau. Then, retorted her majesty with some warmth, it must have been poached by Frenchmen, for I am sure the English are too honorable and honest to do anything of the kind. And turning to the vicar of Saint-Germain, who was present, she asked him, if he thought they were capable of such malpractices as poaching. Alas, madam, exclaimed the old ecclesiastic, it is the besetting sin of your people. I verily believe that if I were dressed in a hare skin, they would poach me. The queen then gave orders that, for the time to come, no game should be purchased for her table, or even brought into the chateau, unless accompanied by a satisfactory account of whence it came, lest she should be in any way implicated in the evil deeds of her followers. Doubtless the well-stocked preserves of his French majesty were somewhat the worse for the vicinity of fox-hunting Jacobite squires and other starving members of the British colony at Saint-Germain, who had been accustomed to sylvan sports, and had no other means of subsistence than practicing their woodcraft illegally on their royal neighbors' hares and pheasants. Mary Beatrice was the more annoyed at these trespasses, because it appeared an ungrateful return for the kindness and hospitality that had been accorded to herself, her family, and followers by Louis the Fourteenth, who had allowed the use of his dogs and the privilege of the chase to her late consort and her son. While at Chalot, the queen and her daughter were invited to the marriage of the Dauphin's third son, the Duc de Berry, with Mademoiselle d'Orlan, but they were both at that time so depressed in spirits by the sufferings of their faithful friends at Saint-Germain and the failure of all present hope for the restoration of the House of Stuart that they were reluctant to sadden the nuptial rite by their appearance. The King of France, knowing how unhappy they were, excused them from assisting at the ceremonial, but the court ladies were ordered to be in grand costume for their state visit of congratulation at Marley the following evening. 
when they arrived, the princes and princesses, and great nobles, were disposed at different card tables, and, according to the etiquette of that time, the queen and princess made their visits of congratulation at each of them. They then returned to their calm abode at Chalot, without participation in the diversions of the court. The Chevalier de St. George returned from the army at the end of the campaign, ill and out of spirits. He came to see his mother and sister at Chalot, by whom he was tenderly welcomed, all three assisted at the commemorative services of their church on the 16th of September, the anniversary of James II's death. The next day, the chevalier escorted his sister, the Princess Louisa, back to Saint-Germain, but Mary Beatrice, who always passed several days at that mournful season in fasting, prayer, and absolute retirement, remained at the convent for that purpose. She was also suffering from indisposition, it appears, from an observation in the following affectionate billet, which the Princess Louisa wrote to her beloved parent before she went to bed. Madam, I cannot refrain from writing to your majesty this evening, not being able to wait till tomorrow, as the groom does not go till after dinner. I am here only in person, for my heart and soul are still at Chalot at your feet, too happy if I could flatter myself that your majesty has thought one moment this evening of your poor daughter, who can think of nothing but you. We arrived here just as it was striking nine. The king, thank God, is very little fatigued and has eaten a good supper. You will have the goodness to pardon this sad scrawl, but having only just arrived, my writing table is in great disorder. I hope this will find your majesty much better than we left you after a good night's rest. I am, with more respect than ever, your majesty's most humble and obedient daughter and servant, Louise Marie, at Saint-Germain, this 17th of September, in the evening. Most precious, of course, must this unaffected tribute of filial devotion have been to her to whom it was addressed. The faded ink and half-obliterated characters of the crumpled and almost illegibly scribbled letter, which was too soon to become a relic of the young warm-hearted writer, testify how often it had been bathed in a mother's tears. Mary Beatrice made her daughter very happy by writing to her by her son's physician, Dr. Wood, and her royal highness responds with all the ardor of a devoted lover in the following pleasant letter. Madam, Mr. Wood gave me yesterday the letter your majesty has done me the honor of writing to me. I receive it with inexpressible joy, for nothing can equal the pleasure I feel in hearing from you when I have the misfortune to be absent from you. I am delighted that you are improved in health, and I hope you will be sufficiently recovered tomorrow to undertake the journey with safety. I cannot tell you how impatient I am to kiss your majesty's hand and to tell you by word of mouth that I can see nothing nor attend to anything when I am away from you. The last few days I have passed here have been weary, for I care for nothing without you. Yesterday and today have seemed to me like two ages. Yesterday I had not even the king, my brother, for you know he was the whole day at Versailles. I can do nothing but pace up and down the balcony, and, I am sorry to say, only went out to the Recollet. Meaning that she attended one of the short services in the Franciscan convent, her royal highness, however, goes on to confess to her absent mamma that she provided herself with better amusement in the sequel, for she says, 
in the evening finding a good many of the young people had assembled themselves together below i sent in quest of a violin and we danced country dances till the king returned which was not till supper time i could write till to-morrow without being able to express half the veneration and respect that i owe to your majesty and if i might presume to add the tenderness i cherish for you if you will permit that term to the daughter of the best of mothers and who will venture to add that her inclination even more than her duty compels her to respect and honour your majesty more than it is possible either to imagine or express and which her heart alone can feel mary beatrice returned to saint germain towards the end of september and spent the winter there with her children she and her son held their separate little courts under the same roof he as king and she as queen mother of england with all the ceremonials of royalty their poverty would have exposed them to the sarcasms of the french courtiers and wits if compassion for their misfortunes and admiration for the dignity with which the fallen queen had supported all her trials had not invested her with a romantic interest in the eyes of a chivalric nation from the monarch on the throne to the humblest of his subjects all regarded her as an object of reverential sympathy on the death of the dauphin in april seventeen eleven louis the fourteenth sent his grand chamberlain the duke de bouillon to announce his loss to mary beatrice and her son this was done with the same ceremony as if they had been in reality what he thought it proper to style them the king and queen mother of great britain mary beatrice paid louis a private visit of sympathy at marley the day his son was interred her daughter the princess louisa accompanied her but it was observed that her majesty left her in the coach for the dauphin had died of the smallpox and she feared to expose her darling to the risk of the infection by allowing her to enter the palace she excused the absence of her son for the same reason state visits of condolence were afterwards paid by her and her son in due form to every member of the royal family these were returned on the twenty first of april by the french princes and princesses in a body greatly resembling a funeral procession for the ladies wore mourning hoods and the gentlemen muffling cloaks their first visit was paid to the chevalier de st george where the respect demanded by him as titular king of england forbade the mourners to be seated therefore after a few solemn compliments had been exchanged they were ushered into the presence chamber of queen mary beatrice who was with all her ladies in deep mourning to receive them six fautils were placed for the accommodation of the privileged namely herself her son the new dauphin and dauphiness the duke and duchess of berry the latter as the wife of a grandson of france took precedence of her parents the duke and duchess of orleans who were only allowed folding chairs when the party were seated mary beatrice apologized for not being herself in monte that is to say dressed in a mourning hood to receive them but this as she always wore the veil and garb of a widow was incompatible with her own costume in which she could not make any alteration even out of respect to the late dauphin when this was repeated to louis the fourteenth he expressed himself perfectly satisfied with the excuse made by the widowed queen and kindly said he would not have wished her to do violence to her feelings by altering her costume to assume a mourning hood even if it had been for himself instead of his son the dauphin after the princes and princesses had conversed with mary beatrice a few minutes they all rose and signified their wish 
of returning the visits of her royal highness the princess of england as the youngest daughter of james the second was always styled in france but the queen prevented them by sending for her she was satisfied that they were prepared to pay her daughter that punctilious mark of respect the princess had absented herself because it was proper that her visits of condolence should be separately acknowledged and also because etiquette forbade her to sit in her mother's presence on this occasion and if she stood the french princesses must also for as a king's daughter she took precedence of them all a protestant consort a crowned head withal and one who possessed this powerful recommendation to her favour that he had expressed a romantic inclination to espouse her brother's cause was about this time proposed for the princess louisa no other than that erratic northern luminary charles the twelfth of sweden the maternal tenderness of mary beatrice in all probability revolted from sacrificing her lovely and accomplished daughter to so formidable a spouse in the summer of seventeen eleven the chevalier de st george made an incognito tour through many of the provinces of france and mary beatrice to avoid the expense of keeping up her melancholy imitation of queenly state at st germain in his absence withdrew with the princess her daughter to her favorite retreat at chalot it was within the walls of that convent alone that the hapless widow of james the second enjoyed a temporary repose from the cares and quarrels that harassed her in her exiled court a court made up of persons of ruined fortunes with hearts breaking and tempers soured by disappointment who instead of being united in that powerful bond of friendship which a friendship in suffering for the same cause should have knit were engaged in constant altercations and struggles for preeminence who can wonder that the fallen queen preferred the peaceful cell of a recluse from the world and its turmoils to the empty parade of royalty which she was condemned to support in her borrowed palace at st germain where every chamber had its separate intrigues and whenever she went abroad for air and exercise or for the purpose of attending the service of her church she was beset with importunities of starving petitioners who with cries and moving words or the more touching appeal of pale cheeks and tearful eyes besought her for that relief which she had no means of bestowing even her youthful daughter who by nature was inclined to enjoy the amusements of the court and the sylvan pastimes of the forest or the pleasant banks of the seine with her beloved companions and to look on chalot as a very lugubrious place now regarded it as a refuge from the varied miseries with which she saw her royal mother oppressed at st germain they arrived at the convent on the twentieth of july and were received by the abbess and the nuns with the usual marks of respect the following day the queen had the satisfaction of reading a letter written by the bishop of strasbourg to the abbe roguet full of recommendations of her son whom he had seen during his travels mary beatrice was so much delighted with the tenor of this letter and the quaint simplicity of the style that she requested it might be put in the drawer of the archives of james the second to be kept with other contemporary records which she carefully preserved of her royal consort and their son the next day she received a letter from the chevalier himself giving an account of some of the most interesting objects he had noticed during his travels among other things he mentioned having visited the hospital and the silk factories of lyon in the latter he had been struck with surprise at seeing two thousand reels worked by one wheel 
an observation from which we learn that france was much in advance of england in machinery in the beginning of the last century and that looms worked by water instead of hands performed on a small scale at lyon some of the wonders which we see achieved by the power of steam at manchester and glasgow in the present age like all the royal stuarts the son of james the second took a lively interest in the arts of peaceful life and the progress of domestic civilization his letters to his mother during this tour abounded with remarks on these subjects mary beatrice expressed great satisfaction to her friends at chalot at the good sense which led him to acquaint himself with matters likely to conduce to the happiness of his people in case it should be the will of god to call him to the throne of england the nuns were much more charmed at the prince telling his royal mother that he had been desirous of purchasing for the princess his sister one of the most beautiful specimens of the silks made at lyon for a petticoat but they had not shown him any that he thought good enough for her use he had however wisely summoned female taste to his aid by begging madame lay intendant to undertake the choice for him and she had written to him that she believed that she had succeeded better than his majesty so he hoped his sister would have a petticoat of the most rich and splendid brocade that could be procured to wear in the winter when she left off her mourning the genuine affection for his sister which is indicated by this little trait may well atone for its simplicity mary beatrice having no allowance of any kind for her daughter was precluded by her poverty from indulging her maternal pride by decking her in rich array the chevalier de st georges who had enough of the frenchman in him to attach some importance to the subject of dress was perhaps aware of deficiencies in the wardrobe of his fair sister when he took so much pains to procure for her a dress calculated to give her on her reappearance at the french court the eclat of a splendid toilette to set off her natural charms the pure unselfish affection which united the disinherited son and daughter of james the second and his queen in exile and poverty affords a remarkable contrast to the political jealousies and angry passions which inflamed the hearts of their triumphant sisters mary and anne against each other when they had succeeded in driving their father from his throne and supplanting their brother in the regal succession mary beatrice always trembled lest her daughter the princess louisa should be induced to listen to the flattering insinuations of persons in her court who scrupled not to say that nature had fitted her better for a throne than her brother the duke of perth when governor to the prince always entreated him to imitate the gracious and popular manners of his sister telling him that he ought to make his study to acquire that which was with her free and spontaneous end of section five